Welcome to the Pivoting Out of Education podcast, where hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard will share their stories of folks who have left campus-based positions in education and K-12 to leverage their skills in other contexts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average person holds 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 50. Educators, like Jamie and Tom, often enter their careers thinking they will stay in education forever, perhaps because they're trained to think that way, or perhaps it is hard to see other pathways. Both of your hosts pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they want to give back and support others trying to do the same. Thanks for listening in and enjoy today's episode of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Hello and welcome back to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Studdard. And we are so excited you're with us this week. This is one of our Getting Practical with Your Pivot episodes, where we give you hopefully really useful practical advice as you are planning toward your pivot. So you'll know that in the last Getting Practical episode, we talked about thinking about the cultural differences between campus-based positions and positions outside of campuses. And in this particular episode, we are going to talk about something that we give a lot of advice about to folks who are looking to make the change. And that is how do you make changes to your resume and cover letter? So we're going to give you some key points throughout this episode and hope that you do find them to be useful. And that you start really migrating and thinking about how you can adjust your resume. As a reminder, Tom and I are willing to support you in your pivot endeavors. We would be happy to chat with anyone one-on-one to give them advice about their pivot. And we do offer resume and cover letter services as well. So we're going to get started with our first bit of advice. And I'm going to share that with you. And what that is, is please... Do not submit your standard higher ed student affairs resume or cover letter. You really are going to need to put some work in to translate your skills. And I was passionate about sharing this with you because even if the positions seem to be similarly named to campus-based positions, and even if the company is adjacent to education, you still need to be able to help the company understand how your skills translate. And you also have to help them understand why you're interested, which I'll talk more about that later. Yeah, I, I know I made that mistake. I kept my student affairs resume for a couple of years and I would, I would show it to people. I wasn't applying for jobs, but I would potentially send it out because I was looking to be on a board or I was looking to be a speaker at a presentation and people would literally reply back with an immediate rejection because it was a very standard higher education resume, and it wasn't necessarily speaking to the business environment. Uh, like you said, it's, it's, it's extremely important to translate your skills. We talk a lot about, with our guests that you've heard already, the importance of making sure that your skills, which are transferable, are articulated that way. And you have to put the work in to showing that you have thought about how you can speak to those skills that your new company or the place where you're applying is looking for because you have those skills. It's just a matter of making sure that you're able to translate that. And that leads into the second piece of advice, which is as you're thinking about rewriting your resume and 
let me emphasize rewriting your resume sort of almost start from scratch because it will help you sort of reframe what it is that you're doing. You've got to complete an audit of the skills that you have and the experiences that you've had while you've been working in campus-based positions and think about how you can articulate and translate those to the business environment. It's important to really reframe your responsibilities, reframe your achievements. I can guarantee you that if you've taught classes at a university, the corporation, unless you're applying for a teaching gig or a specialized training gig, doesn't care that you've taught eight classes every semester that you've worked at a, at a college or university. They also don't care that you've been on 800 committees. That's just not something that they're looking for. They're looking for results-driven resumes and results-driven cover letters. And as a part of that, it's important to reframe your language. And you need to mirror the terms. I speak about this quite often that when I'm looking at somebody's resume, if I don't see the resume reflect the job that I've posted, I immediately move it to a no pile. Even if those skills may be transferable, I feel like the person didn't take the time to articulate how those skills are transferable. And if I'm doing that and I worked in higher education and, and understand the transferable skills, then certainly somebody who's never worked in higher education and as a hiring manager is doing that. Some key things that, some, some key terms that are important to really think about is students. We operate in higher education with students. We teach students, we orient students, we develop students. That's not happening at the company level unless you're applying for something and maybe higher ed adjacent or a mentoring type role in a nonprofit. But typically the students are participants, they're learners, or they're customers. I realize that feels very business-like, but you're applying for a job in a business. So reframe that. The students that you work with are the consumers of whatever it is that you did at the campus. Translate that over to customers. Translate that over to participants, both on your resume and in your interview. Orientation. This is definitely one that is near and dear to my heart. I spent 15 years in the world of orientation, even being on the board of directors for for NOTA, the association for those of us who worked in orientation. And so orientation, the term is really near and dear to my heart. The only time we talk about orientation at a corporate is sometimes during the HR's like orientation process. And that's typically like an hour. Over by far, the, the translation is onboarding. We had a guest earlier talk about this. Our guest, Chrissy Roth Francis, talked about this, that she's even rephrased her orient to onboarding. And as you're rethinking your resume, if you've ever done any orientation work, reframe it as onboarding. And finally, think about your student information system. I would almost imagine that anybody that's worked in a college campus has had some work with their SIS, whether that's a homegrown student information system or PeopleSoft or whatever the case may be. Those are all CRMs in the world of business. And in many instances, those companies are using Salesforce. A lot of companies are going to require CRM experience, whether that be Salesforce or HubSpot or fill in the blank. You have CRM experience. You just don't realize it because you've been working with a student information system. So translate that skill, translate that verbiage over to, to CRM, and that's going to help you get a leg up on other applicants who might be vying for that same position. So, you know, all in all, really think about the, the language differences and translate those those subtle nuances over, and it's going to help your resume stand out just a little bit more and, and not feel like it's a higher ed or student affairs resume. Yeah. And Tom, we'll um, make sure and provide a link to our blog post that has 
sort of the corporate terminology listing so that so that listeners can can check that out because in addition to actually literally translating those terms there are just some other ways in which we talk about things in corporate that I think would become helpful for resumes but but especially for interviews you know like we use KPI and let's look at the macro here and let's socialize this and do you have your deck that you can send over I'm made aware that these are sort of corporate lingo when some of my campus partners like make fun of me for it. And I'm like, well, this is where I work. So so we'll share those so that you can kind of know that the lingo as well. We'll share the, the blog post that we have about that. I love that you mentioned the word deck because that is most definitely <laughs> something that I am notorious for saying, I'll just whip up a deck or send me over your deck. And yep. I'm sure if I, I'm sure I never said that when I worked on, no. on, a, on a campus. It was my PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. <laughs> it was It was most definitely not the deck that I was working on. So that's a really good one. I appreciate you adding that to the poll. Yeah, absolutely. The next thing to consider as you're looking at your resume, and this is, I think, going to be probably one of the more difficult things. But, you know, whereas in student affairs, I used to suggest to people that you should have one page of resume for every five years of experience. It's pretty much standard that we want to see two pages max on resumes. And I think Tom might even say one. So, you know, at the end of the day, what you need to think about is just really condensing down and making it as simple as possible to illustrate what you have done and where. I recommend, and Tom, I'm definitely curious of your perspectives, but I recommend considering creating a functional resume as opposed to a chronological resume, especially if, you know, you're really making a huge pivot. Like if you've only ever worked in res life and you want to apply for an ed tech position, you're going to need to to identify, you know, to Tom's earlier point. Yeah, they don't care that you've been on committees or led committees, et cetera, but but the transferable skills do matter. And so finding a way to articulate those in a way that is easily consumable quickly is important because as you as as we've all heard, you know, recruiters or hiring managers, we look at resumes for like 30 to 60 seconds to get like a first pass at the degree to which someone is qualified. So you need to you need to be able to be concise. Yeah, and the sort of the follow-up advice to that, and this is this is where it begins to be really challenging for those of us in higher ed. You know, I I shared with Jamie that my resume in higher ed was four pages, and I didn't even think about the fact that I might need to add a fifth page sometime in the future as I continue to grow. But it is certainly not five pages now. In fact, it's about two pages, and the only reason it's two pages is because I've had a career for twenty plus years, and for those who are you know, looking to make a pivot maybe after their first resident director job or their first orientation coordinator job, one page is maximum. Beyond that, it, it sort of becomes just a lot of extra that, that the hiring manager has to read. And as you're beginning to think about that, that one page resume or perhaps that one and a half page resume, sort of going back to what I said earlier, sort of that start over and rewrite it. This is where the next piece of advice comes into play, which is you've got to be results driven. In higher education, we listed everything we were responsible for. My very first bullet under director of new student orientation was responsible for the new student orientation of first year transfer graduate and international students. 
that will not tell me as a hiring manager at a company anything other than, oh, great, he did an orientation program. What I needed to hear from that resume is how many people did he orient? How many did he grow from year to year? What was the impact of that program on the overall goal of retention and persistence? Those are the things that the company that, you're, that you potentially are looking to interview with or, or get hired at is going to be more interested in. They're interested in the results, not the responsibilities. You've got to quantify your accomplishments. Everything that we do in higher education has a quantifiable way to it. It's just a matter of reframing it and rethinking it. Think of year-over-year growth. If you're running student activities, if you're running academic programs, whatever the case may be, you have a year-over-year number or a quarter-over-quarter number or semester-over-semester number. Put that in your resume. If you have done assessment where you can talk about growing satisfaction scores from four points to 4.5 points on a Likert scale, say that in your resume. But no more than like two or three bullets per position. And the reason for that is because we want to see one result, two result, next job, one result, two result, next job. Whether you're creating a functional resume or a chronological resume, I need to see the results. I don't need to see the responsibilities. Agreed. And, and actually, I think I might need Tom to review my resume to make sure I've done a good job at that. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly difficult. I remember when I was applying for the job I'm at now, the CEO who was recruiting me said, please send me your resume, but don't send me the one that you always use. That was the first sort of inclination. He was looking out for me. He knew I was going to send him a four-page resume. He had known me from when I worked in higher education. He immediately said, reframe it. Make sure that you're really emphasizing the training pieces that you've done because I was applying for a training job. And that was the best advice I'd ever gotten because I knew then and there, in that moment, my resume was never going to be the same as I transitioned out of the campus-based position. It's really challenging. And that's why my advice is start from scratch. I really, I remember sitting on, on a plane, rewriting that resume for him. And, and I wasn't looking at my old one. I was literally rewriting it from scratch, thinking about what I had done from a training perspective and how I could quantify those results. So tagging on to the resumes need to be results driven and that they need to match the terms and the job description. I want you to really think about making sure that the language that you're using is very clear to an applicant tracking system. What is an applicant tracking system? It is a, it is a way for corporations, companies to read resumes in maximum capacity. It's how we track everybody that's applying for the jobs that we have. I have hundreds of applicants for each position that I post. There's no way I can read each one of them. So our applicant tracking system assists with that. They're looking for those keywords. We know that that happens in higher education. I guarantee you that most college campuses are using an applicant tracking system. Uh, the difference is that they probably still get reviewed by some person, whether that's you or somebody in human resources. That's not going to be the case in most corporate environments most of the time. That ATS is going to automatically remove applicants who don't look like they meet the requirements. And so even though we know you have the requirements, we know that you have the transferable skills, you're not even getting to the hiring manager because you haven't done your due diligence of matching up that language to the job description. Your resume must speak to the verbiage in that job description, in that job posting. And you don't have to meet all the requirements, but you have to use the right language. We had a guest that 
said earlier that not every person has to have every single skill in a job description in order to apply for it. In fact, I'm not necessarily looking for somebody who has every single skill. In fact, if somebody has every single skill, I'm going to wonder if they've made it up to some extent because it's hard to meet every single thing that we're looking for, that sort of purple unicorn that's out there. If you meet 60, 70, 80% of the job description, put in your application, put in your resume, just make sure that it matches up to the job description. Agreed. And we will be continuing to share tools and tips and resources and the like on our website on resumes. So we're going to change the topic just briefly to talk about cover letters, which is really not Tom's favorite subject. He insisted that I cover this particular topic, but I know he's going to want to add in. I don't particularly love cover letters. And I, I like the fact that many companies just, they simply don't require them. And probably Tom would say he doesn't even want to see them. But What's interesting is that my experience has been quite different with regard to the cover letter. And so you want to you want to think about this. This is going to be an area you'll have to kind of weigh my feedback and advice with Tom's and decide what's best for you. But for me, what what I I mean, first of all, I do need it to be short. I'm I'm like not I'm not going to read two pages. I'm not going to read four pages. I'd like to read a very succinct one page that documents how you see your skills transferring to this role, especially highlighting things that maybe aren't so obvious by just looking at your resume. So, okay, you worked in res life. Let's say you kept your chronological resume. What did you do with technology or online education that makes you a good fit for this position? I mean, hoping that you would be identifying those things in your resume, but here's where you bring this to the manager's attention. I also think it's really useful for you to be very clear about why you're interested in this particular position and this company. But for me, the reason why I find this important is because I will receive and review, you know, 500 some resumes and cover letters for a student affairs related position in my ed tech company. And a lot of them don't make it clear why ed tech, because I know that there's such a substantive difference that I want to make sure that people have really thought about those differences and that it's something they want to come to as opposed to they just want to leave their campus-based position. So I like to know like, well, I love technology. I've always been the person on committees and in my positions that like is a driver for, you know, technology for efficiency or engagement or whatever it is. So I really would like to know the whys and why interested. And I think the cover letter is a great place to do that. Tom, tell us your feelings about cover letters. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no secret that I am not a fan of cover letters, partly because I, I have a lot of resumes that I need to read already. And so add to that, you know, an extra cover letter page. And I think, what, what the heck? It's it literally just another page of, of things I have to read. And I'll be honest, when I, I'll never forget when I worked at Arizona State University, they would literally, they were still collecting hard copy resumes, right? People would still mail in their resume. So that will give you a sense of how old I am. And I remember when I was interviewing for this position, the resumes landed on my desk and it was like, a, it was a stack of paper. And I remember n- not having enough time to even read the cover letter. Like it was, you know, I needed to hire this position. So I was just, I immediately went to the resume. And, and I do remember having a career center director when I worked at California Lutheran University, who taught me 
the importance of having a cover letter that matched, you know, the, you know, sort of the, the job description bullets. And then in the right-hand column, I would list the things that, you know, sort of synced up. And even to that point, I remember thinking, well, why would I do this if my cover, if my resume already does that? I work for a company that doesn't even require or request cover letters. You know, on our job site, you can submit one attachment. And now if you put them all together in one PDF, then great. But in general, it's it literally says on our on our job site, submit resume here, not submit cover letter and resume here. I I've just never been a fan. I don't think that they're necessary. But again, that's me and that's my hiring manager sort of philosophy. Every hiring manager is a little different. And it's important to understand what the company that you're applying for is looking for and wanting. In higher ed, it was a given. You had to submit a cover letter. There was no if, ands, or buts. In fact, in many situations in higher ed, if you didn't submit the cover letter, you got automatically rejected. But in corporate, it's going to be different based on the company that you're applying for. And so it's important to sort of look for what their recommendation and their requirement is. And even better, if you know someone at that company or you know someone in that particular field or industry, ask them what they think, because even the fields are a little bit different, whether you're applying for something in sales or customer experience or product or engineering, et cetera. I thought of another area in which we we maybe don't align on our advice, Tom, but you know what? We haven't talked about this in like 15 years, I think, since you last gave me advice on my resume, which which I do want to credit you for. I believe my resume is is so much better as a result of like 20 years ago or whatever it was. You gave me advice and I've just kept building on it. And so I feel like I need another review from you. But listen, here was here it was. I I remember I sent you a resume to give me feedback on and I had my name at the top in red. And, and and I, I still in, I have two versions of my resume right now that I maintain one that is a very boring look and feel and one that feels different and it does have red on it. And I will receive some resumes that are very colorful, have pictures, presumably folks are doing it to stand out for me. That actually has helped. I mean, there is such thing as like being too different. And also like if you include a a picture, people can make assumptions just by looking at the picture that you may or may not want them to. But like, you know, sometimes I'm tired of seeing that same old format. So I do like a little something different, but I'm pretty sure that this is an area we differ. So, So go ahead and tell our listeners, Tom, how do you feel about different looks and feels to cover letters and resumes. I think the only people that ha- should have a different look and feel to the resume are those that are applying for creative type roles. So if you're looking <laughs> to be an instructional designer, a creative director, an advertising, absolutely. If somebody's applying to be a corporate trainer, I need your resume to sort of sing corporate trainer. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. I think everybody's different. And again, for me, the difference is err on the side of caution, right? Like you don't know that Jamie likes colorful resumes, but my guess is that if your resume is sort of standard looking, but meets all the, all the bullets, it's going to be fine. If your resume is colorful and even though it may have all the things that you like or the things that the hiring manager is looking for, it might distract from that. And so that's why I always say sort of err on the side of quote unquote corporate caution. 
Jamie, as you were telling that story, it makes me think of, and forgive me for the cultural reference from like a decade ago, it makes me think of Legally Blonde when Elle Woods is like, here's my resume. It's on pink and it has an added scent to it. Don't you think it helps it stand out a little bit? No, it doesn't. It actually makes me nauseous. So for me, it's like, make a corporate standard resume, save it as a PDF. That's another thing. Save it as a PDF. Please do not send me a Word document because you will oh, lose yeah. the formatting. But yeah. send me the PDF and we're good to go as long as your resume <laughs> is, is meeting the needs of the job description. So yes, we, we do differ a little bit there. In fact, for those of you who don't know, when, when Jamie and I are recording these, we actually are looking at one another. And she immediately saw that I rolled my eyes quite loudly, talked about her colorful red resume. Now, you know what? I will say this. There are some positions and some cultures where like I did this I saw and I was like this candidate their resume is colorful like it was it was it was actually really colorful and I was like we need that on our team I need someone that's loud enough to submit a colorful resume and that person's that person's personality is just as colorful as their resume so you know I mean I don't know to Tom's point like maybe you want to show your color once you get your foot in the door for an interview, they'll see that color. But, you know, to each their own, you decide. And to Elwoods or not to Elwoods, that is up to you. The last thing that we want to give you advice on is about social media and your social media presence. And this is not uh, really like make sure that you post the appropriate things. I think that we all do that at nauseum. And most people who are listening to this probably give your own webinars about that. What I wanted to emphasize is think about how you can set yourself apart by creating some sort of a digital identity and presence. So I've done that in a few different ways. I've done that by maintaining a personal website, which is drjamiehoffman.com. I will link to it in the show notes and you can check that out. And I do a fairly good job about updating it as far as like my accomplishments and the like. I would love to blog more often than I do. So I, I try to do that more frequently. And sometimes I've been concerned that it would look bad, that I'm not sort of continuing that flow of blogging. But, but I think having a website really has helped people get a, a more well-rounded picture of me. I don't think it's necessarily something that employers are looking at when they're looking at my resume. I will say that I, you know, I'm strategic about having a presence on LinkedIn and I do think that sometimes people will Google me and, you know, that's a key point. If, if you Google yourself, what's the first thing that comes up? If it's like almost nothing, then, well, that's what they're going to know about you is almost nothing. And, and maybe that's an okay thing. It's better than like, you know, college pictures of you doing shots, but you can control that narrative that's out there by pushing out positive things about yourself. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but just some sort of a presence. The other thing that I do is that after I have an interview, I will often send something that is different than a traditional thank you. And this might be something that Tom would say, don't do that. That's too far out of bounds. But I have by and large gotten very positive feedback about doing this, but I will send a thank you video, short one, because like nobody wants to listen for like five minutes, but you know, and keeping in mind, I'm in the ed tech space. So like, I want to keep showing my competency with technology. So I'll send a video instead of a written typed or in addition to a written typed email. 
The other thing that I'll do sometimes, because uh, especially sometimes I'll feel like, gosh, I feel like I had so much more to share about how I'm a great fit than what your limited questions allowed me to do. So sometimes I'll create like a little web page that specifically addresses the key things that I wanted to also share with them, inclusive of work examples. Now, you know, sometimes I won't do that latter one until like I maybe I know I'm a finalist in a search process, but I want to show them that I'm going the extra mile. And if I'm asked, like I recently was recruited for this position at an esports company, and I was asked to put together a, a listing, a, a document of how I feel that I meet the expectations of the job. And rather than just popping it on a Google Doc or a Word Doc, I thought, you know, I'm going to, you know, show them something creative. And so I actually leveraged a Google slide template that looked like a, an iPhone and each of the apps linked to a different component of the transferability of my skills, which I think I, I feel comfortable sharing that with everyone. And so I can link to that, but I got a lot of really positive feedback on that from them. So, you know, just think about how you can leverage some of these tools that you use every day that just to set yourself apart and, and look a little bit different. And maybe Tom, is that too different? What do you think? No, I think that that's right. I think that having a digital identity is really important, whether it's a website or social media presence. You know, again, I think you are right in that most people listening to the show could probably do their own webinars and presentations about Facebook and Instagram and making sure that those things are either locked down or or clean for lack of a better term. But LinkedIn is the place where I go. You know, every candidate that I'm looking at, one, I, I sort of expect their LinkedIn profile to be listed on their resume. And two, that's where I'm gonna go and look at who they are, what they do, what they've done, where they went to school, what skills that they say that they have, if they have any recommendations. I, I, I'm not looking at the photo, but that is something to think about. You know, obviously that, that, that will show who you are which has some advantages and disadvantages to it, but I'm less, I'm less, less interested in, in the photo and more interested in what your LinkedIn profile says about you. I also think that LinkedIn is a really powerful way to build some social networking around the positions that you're interested in. We are a culture of hashtagging. And so following posts around hashtag customer education, hashtag sale, hashtag product management, We'll start to clue you into some of the terminology that is important that you may not even realize is out there that that you need to use in both your resume and and your interview process. But also, you know, joining those LinkedIn groups around those those hashtags is important as well. It is truly how I have developed and grown, even in my current role as I've expanded and taken on new responsibilities. I, I mention all the time that when I was in higher education, I did not know what Salesforce was, and now I live and breathe it. And partly is because you know, I started to research through LinkedIn, through through other people's digital identities, what that was. So I think that that's a, a really good point, Jamie, is your your digital identity presence is more than just your Facebook account nowadays, or I'm clearly dating myself by saying Facebook, but more than, more than- At least you didn't say MySpace. <laughs> well, it was a Tom that started it, right? So. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> You know, but it's more than your your MySpace friend store or Facebook portfolio or, or platform. It is really, you know, the the entire identity that you have online. And, and that can be good or bad. And so the more you can put out there that's good, the more you can sort of own that space, the better. 
Yes. Good, good points there. And I too, I've, I've learned a lot through LinkedIn, inclusive of just professional associations I didn't even know existed for various elements of a discipline. So, well, thank you. Hopefully you all have found the advice we've given to be useful. You know, you, you might be feeling a little overwhelmed by the work that you have to do here or that we're recommending that you do. And, and I would encourage you to just remember that most likely someone helped you realize that you could do higher ed for a living because you had no clue that it was actually a discipline. And unfortunately, that that is the reality that by and large, most people don't really understand how college campuses function, never mind, you know, what a student affairs person does, right? Like what even is student affairs? That That in and of itself is confusing to people. And they'll oftentimes anchor back to their own college experience. And if they lived on campus, they may get it. And if they didn't, they, they probably really won't. And so when we, when we encourage you to think about this translation, it is, it is partly, you know, because in general, it's an unknown avenue and career pathway. And so you have to help people understand it. And we had a really wonderful guest on this season, Chrissy Roth Francis, who really emphasize the fact that higher ed folks, you qualify for these jobs. It's really just a matter. And, and in fact, she, I think believing, I believe she even said you over, you're overqualified in some ways or the most qualified. It really is a matter of just articulating those things and helping folks understand all that you really do bring and have to offer. So we wish you all of the best in in really digging in on your resume and cover letter if you do want to tackle the cover letter and do reach out to us if you need any support in that area. Thanks so much for listening and please join us again next week. As always, thank you to our guests for joining us. Additionally, special thanks to our sound editor, John Alexander. We spend one third of our life at work. It should be something we believe in and have a passion for. It's okay if that passion changes. If you are thinking about pivoting out of education or know someone who is, visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com for advice, testimonials, and blog articles. Have advice to share or would like a private consultation? Contact Jamie or Tom via the website or at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com.